Hello, listeners. I'm Jamia. I'm Jamila, and we are Live Voices. Here from librarians of color, what speaks to the fullness of their careers, including successes and challenges. How do they do it? Join us to find out more about their Live Voices. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 7. Today, we have an interview with Nikki Andrews. Nikki Andrews is the Open Education Librarian at the University of San Francisco. Originally from Oteoroa, they are of Maori and Pakeha descent and an enrolled member of the Nati Pawa Iwi. They graduated with a BA in Social Sciences from Auckland University of Technology, Master of Library and Information Science from the University of Washington, and Master of Indigenous Studies from the University of Otago. Nikki has participated in many library communities, including as an ALA Spectrum Scholar, ALA Emerging Leader, NCSU Libraries Fellow, and Spark Open Education Leadership Program Fellow. Their work exposing the racialized and misogynist nature of imposter syndrome earned them the 2021 ACRL Wigs Award for Significant Achievement in Women and Gender Studies Librarianship. Outside of libraries, they dabble in poetry, catch Pokemon, and watch dinosaur documentaries with their cat. What drew you to librarianship? Well, thank you so much for asking. Um, So at this point, I'm not sure anymore if I ended up in libraries accidentally um, or if it was kind of inevitable. So when I When I look back, and I've been a librarian, a credentialed librarian for five years, um, but when I look back, I kind of see my journey in like four main steps. Um, So first off, my mom, my mom would always take my little brother and I to our public library um, just because it was like a low cost leisure activity or something you could do. And it was kind of back in the day where you could kind of just leave your kids there for a while and go like take care of an errand or do something else. Um, And I happened to be, or maybe consequently, I was pretty bookish. So I was always kind of into libraries or into like bookshops. Um, And then in in high school, so I, I grew up in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, And we call our last, well, at the time, we called our last year of high school seventh form. Um, And by the time I got to seventh form, my high school, which was a pretty low funded, poorly funded high school, did not have the teachers necessary to teach um, all of the subjects I was taking. So I was taking things like Japanese, classical studies, stuff like that and the school didn't have any teachers so in in that time um they would enroll you in correspondence school and it wasn't like today where you'd have like a canvas module and videos and stuff it was pretty um pretty lo-fi the correspondence school of new zealand would send you like a paper packet of stuff to do that week and you'd have to like fill it out and the school would post it back to them to be marked um and so i in seventh form i ended up spending about three hours per day in my school library um because i had those correspondence classes and then all the seventh formers had like a study period um so i was in this like I wasn't allowed to leave the library and because other people were studying, I also wasn't allowed to like really play up or like be loud or anything. Um, So there was a point where I think on a dare, like I think my friend dared me to like read the entire collection in the library. Um, which was a small library and I did not do that but what I did do was my friends and I ended up like looking at each book um, and we very quickly happened upon a lot of books that were outdated that had a lot of like racist egregious stereotypes in them Um, and this isn't like a nice story where I organize a student union and we get a bunch of money or anything All, all I really did was um just scribble in the front page of the book like 
my friends and I would be like, Nikki thinks this book is racist and it shouldn't be in the library. Or Shani thinks this book's really old and you need to like throw it away. Um, so it was really just this kind of passive childish thing. Um, but then at the end of the year, we kind of heard that the librarian was actually seeing what we had done and was pulling some of those books, um, maybe only because we'd scribbled on them. Like, I don't know, but that that was a thing. Um, at the same time, my friend Shani and I volunteered for our public library um, as some kind of like teen advisory group. Um, and I'm really interested to know if this was a thing in the United States or if it was just like the Henderson Library in 1998 or whatever. Um, but anyway, once a month, a group of us teenagers would meet at the library. Um, the librarian would provide a ton of snacks. That was the main reason that we went. Um, would chat amongst ourselves. And then maybe once a quarter, she would take all of us across the street to the shopping mall. And we would purchase on the library's credit card all of the like CDs and movies and video games um, for the library collection. She would just have us teenagers pick it out. Um, so, you know, it was cool because I got to hang out with my friend and eat snacks and I was poor, but I get to, I got to go to the mall and basically do like the big shopping spree where it's just like anything you want, you put it in the cart. Um, so that kind of felt I don't know. That that felt cool. Um, fast forward, and I am I am getting to the end of this question. Um, when I went to university, um, I graduated with a BA in social sciences um, from Auckland University of Technology. And afterwards, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I also really wasn't sure what I could do. Like I didn't feel particularly qualified or trained to do anything. Um, I'd had a job offer from Amnesty International, which I really wanted to take, um, but it was basically being a telemarketer for them and it really didn't pay enough to live. So I kind of let that one go. And I ended up getting a job from, uh, at the time they were called Tamaki Pataka Korero, Auckland City Libraries. And so I was the receptionist um, and like the junior admin for the flagship branch. Um, and as part of my job there, and I was very young, I think I started that job maybe when I was 20, um, I was taking minutes in all of the like business lead team meetings and like the meetings of community branch managers. Um, and I was exposed to a lot of project management um, and saw lots of different ways that policies were set. Um, so I wasn't working down on the floor. I was very much behind the scenes, but I got to see um, the library implement all of these projects. So like launching the library catalog in Te Reo Māori, the Māori language. Um, I think they implemented like their first e-commerce system while I was there. Um, they began designs for a new library building, which is actually now it's the public library on my tribal land, my Iwi land. Um, and I just got to see all these different things um, that they were doing, right? So libraries, you know, they have a reputation for being static. And I've certainly been in many libraries that are like that. Um, but I was able to see the people at Tamaki Pataka Korero implement a lot of changes um, and demonstrate a deep desire for progress. Um, so I also got to see them implement many, I mean, sorry, serve many different constituencies. Um, so Auckland, Tamaki Makoto is a very diverse city. Um, and even way, way back when I worked there, the library reflected that in its programming, outreach and collections. You know, you'd have signage and brochures in all different languages. Um, you'd have a lot of the heritage celebrations and things things like that. Um, so libraries, at least at, you know, at that time when I was a young person, it kind of just felt like a place where you could 
make a reasonable living um, and collaborate with people on stuff that that the local community cared about. Well, that was a, that was a great um, story about how you came to librarianship. I think everyone's stories are unique and different. Um, this this is no different from that. <laughs> so it was very interesting to hear. But then you also hear some of the commonalities, right, of what of what brings us to it. And I, I hear that as well in the story. As a BIPOC librarian, what do you view as critical to the success of the field? I wish I knew. Um, I'm really, to be honest, I'm really not sure what to say here other than institutions need to respect their workers and actively fund their success. Um, and I think the reason why I'm a little bit stumped on this question is because the answer kind of seems obvious, right? Like, give us money, don't be racist. Um, the past, you know, the past couple of years, we've seen so many libraries defunded, um, staff have been fired, staff have been furloughed, um, staff have received pay deductions, um, you know, they've kept working during the pandemic, um, during personal crises. We have seen um, in public libraries staff be deployed for everything from wellness checks through to painting over graffiti that just gets painted back the next day. Um, and at the same time, right, we have the far right organizing very actively, um, organizing to censor all kinds of materials um, and people, um, censoring the perspectives of queer people, people of color. Um, and we're just now seeing the impacts that this, this ideology of fear is having. Um, both in, in libraries and beyond libraries. And of course, we just yesterday received the news um, of the shooting in Colorado. Um, we got that news during Trans Day of Remembrance, and that was a targeted hate crime against queer folks who just wanted to go to a club in Colorado and see each other and have a nice time. Um, you know, at the... I just read this article, um, so it's a podcast, but I read the transcript um, of librarian Amanda Jones. She had just appeared a couple days ago on the New York Times podcast called First Person, um, talking about her experiences speaking out against censorship um, and being met with doxing, death threats, um, and more. And I think Currently, she is in the process of suing um, some of the organizations who have made false claims against her. Um, but in, anyway, my point for Amanda is that in the article, um, Amanda talks about how she gets support from her friends at other libraries. She gets support from um, various networks that she has participated in as a professional. Um, I did not see her talk about support that she got from her employer. I did not see her talk about support that she received or guidance that she received from ALA. Um, and so, and that's that's the same, you know, when I, when I listen to your podcast or when I, when I see webinars or presentations from minoritized librarian colleagues, time and time again, we're told that, you know, the reason I'm here is because of my, my colleagues, my friends, the, the connections I've made. Um, I do not really hear anybody saying I'm here because my employer is so supportive, um, or I'm here because I'm part of a national organization that really advocates for me and is making sure that I get a living wage and is protecting me from harm, from threats, and is really allowing me to do the job that I trained for professionally and with rigor. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, in my mind, at least the answer is pretty basic. Um, and yet as BIPOC particularly, we kept, we keep being asked, right? 
we keep being asked like what can we do for you what do you need will you fill out this survey will you come to this listening session um and it's like well how how many times and how many different ways do we need to tell you for you to believe us and then to just give us what we need or else just stop asking because that's that's an exhausting use of our limited time yes yes to all of that yes yes <laughs> yes, yes 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 definitely exhausting and i think we what you started off with was um give us money and stop being racist <laughs> and those two things alone Simple. would solve like most of the issues mm-hmm. <laughs> if not all <laughs> and stop wasting our time when you ask us use that information we give you and stop wasting our time it's mm-hmm. definitely important <laughs> right I'm just thinking about that like the loss of time um and like you said limited limited time at that because there's so many other things that we could be doing you know with this time and, and energy and we're not able to because we're constantly having to deal with the same thing you know forever almost like in perpetuity it feels like because things are not changing and the matter the the amount of effort we're putting in absolutely so i'm going to move on to the next question and how do you promote equitable practices through your work in the library Thank you. Um, yeah, so as as you mentioned at the beginning, I work for the University of San Francisco, um, and I'm very fortunate that the staff at all levels of Gleason Library um, all deeply care about issues of equity. And our provost is very um, particularly focused on working towards what she calls a day, um, which stands for anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, So by no means is this kind of work a solo effort, um, either in the library or on campus. Um, For for myself, I try to incorporate um, equitable practices in small ways and in all of my work. Um, so for example, I, I teach instruction, um, primarily first year instruction and rhetoric classes for students. Um, and when I do that, I always give a plug um, for our campus food pantry. Um, and I tell folks, that, you know, this is where it is in the library. Um, it's run by students. It's for you. There's no questions asked. You don't have to fill out anything. Um, and you know, that's that's just a really tiny thing, but like food insecurity can be such a sensitive subject, um, at least it was when I was in school. And so I want to give students the information that they need to access these resources without having to come to me if they don't want to, um, and without having to identify themselves as being in need if they don't want to. Um, so it's about communicating some of that information um, while trying to ensure that students still have their dignity intact. Um, I also serve as the liaison for anthropology, sociology, and critical diversity studies. Um, and in those spaces, I get to hear a lot about what students are researching. Um, and typically that involves either a social justice issue um, or something pertaining to their personal identities. Um, and the University of San Francisco really brands itself as being a social justice oriented school. Um, it is a Jesuit institution. And so it draws a lot on that, um, on the Jesuit faith and and themes of giving and being of service um, and caring for the whole person. Um, so so anyway, students always have these really heavy research topics, um, and so I try to talk to them about how to approach that research using frameworks like cultural humility, um, trauma informed care, 
uh, where where appropriate, I might steer them towards um, indigenous research frameworks, broadly speaking. Um, and then I guess the last thing is just I do or try to, I do a lot of listening. Um, I have to be very careful um, because I'm one of a few staff or faculty on campus who identify as Indigenous. Um, so I'm often approached um, when it comes to Indigenous matters and I need to be very mindful because I'm I'm not from here. I'm not Indigenous to here. Um, you know, my, my voice is not particularly the one that they need to be seeking out. Um, it's just folks kind of know I'm around. Um, yeah. That's good. You made a, I like that you made the point that of being aware of your time when you, people want to, to be involved and want to hear your perspective on certain things and saying no to that. That's very good. Also, you kind of speak to diversity within a racial or ethnic group, which I think is also important to, as a reminder, like we're not homogenous groups, right? We're not all the same within a group. And so um, in thinking about that, also being like the voice, you know, quote unquote, for a, a racial group is, is um, a difficult place to be in, right? To be put into. And you also want to be mindful of not putting yourself into that <laughs> kind of uh, position um, because it's just rot with you know some other issues that come along so yeah I think that's just just really important to think about you know and, and sit with even you know for us who are you know listeners who are um BIPOC and kind of thinking about our own kind of positionality um, within that oh it's my turn huh <laughs> but, oh I'm next okay <laughs> how this is actually leads us to this kind of point a little bit, but how has your indigenous heritage and culture influenced your work as a librarian? Thank you. Yeah, I really, I, I enjoyed thinking about this question um, for reasons, including that I've never had a librarian position where indigenous stuff was a formal part of my role. Um, yeah, and so it's really a lot of the service work or the research or the creative work where I'm able to kind of, um, do more focused Indigenous librarian work. Um, yeah, but anyway, anyway, getting, getting back to your question, um, how has my Indigenous heritage influenced my work. Um, well, for a little bit of context, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm never sure how much people know about Aotearoa. Um, so Aotearoa, which is the Indigenous name for New Zealand, um, and I'm, I'm Māori, Māori being the Indigenous people of um, Aotearoa. And so, for a little bit of context, New Zealand, Aotearoa, we have three languages. Um, we speak English. Um, that's kind of just the de facto colonizer. This is what you end up with language. Um, but we also have two official languages. Um, Te Reo Māori, the Māori language, is an official language as of, I want to say, 1986. Um, and New Zealand Sign Language has been an official language as of, I want to say, 2006. Um, so we have those two official languages and English, English is not, but it's, it's everywhere. So that's our language situation. Um, and back home, we have our, what, what some people would call our kind of founding document, not everybody would, but um, we have a treaty with the Crown um, and there's a whole backstory you can look into if you want to. There's an English version um, that 
the British folks signed, and there's a Te Reo Māori version that the Māori folks signed. They say different things, um, which makes interpreting the law quite interesting. But in any case, we have the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and so because we have that document with the Crown, um, from kind of a legal perspective, it positions Aotearoa as being a primarily or first most a bicultural nation of Pākehā and Māori. Um, and then Te Tiriti, which is the Māori version, um, kind of gives us like a legal way of advocating for Māori rights, um, as opposed to, you know, just appealing to good faith or reminding folks about our sovereignty or hoping that the crown feels bad or, or generous. Um, it just gives us something to, to work from. Um, so all that to say that that setup informs how things are done back home. So in my first library job, back when I was a receptionist and admin, um, we already had a dedicated department um, specifically serving Māori patrons. Um, you know, the just little things too, like the carpet, the carpet all throughout the building had a very distinct um, custom pattern that referenced a wayfinding, like a Polynesian wayfinding model. Um, so, you know, if you didn't know, you might just look at it and be like, oh, there's some squiggles and dots and stuff but like if you know you know um and there was a lot of like maori arts and signage and information incorporated into the building so it wasn't really something um that you had to go out of your way to search for at least not in the flagship branch where i worked um and you know there's a whole other discussion that we could have about window dressing um, but, you know, at least I, I thought it was impactful that that stuff was there. Um, if anybody's into cataloging, um, you might have heard of Na Upoko Tukutuku, um, which is the Māori Subject Headings Project. Um, and that has been going since, I believe, 1998. Um, and so now we have Māori cataloging standards that provide a model, or I've heard them spoken of as a model um, for other indigenous communities around the world. Um, you know, there are so many examples of just long-standing Māori advocacy across the information sector, um, you know, including museums, art galleries, um, that this stuff to me is just kind of entrenched. So it, it would never occur to me um, that my librarianship would not aim to advance information access for Māori, Pacifica, and Indigenous peoples. That's just kind of the default. Um, having said that, I'm, I also try to be very forthcoming about my specific positionality. Um, we, so back home, when we talk about whakapapa, which is our word for genealogy, um, we do not go, we do not buy into blood quantum. Um, so I wouldn't say, oh, I'm half this or I'm quarter that. Um, so my heritage includes all of my heritage. Um, and so as I've mentioned before in other talks or spaces, um, my, my dad was Māori and my mum was Pākehā, which is our word for white, um, or European. Um, and so I was not raised on my marae, our reservation, um, with my reo or tikanga. Um, I was raised in a big city and my grandparents, including my Māori grandparents, um, they really encouraged me to be bookish. Um, they encouraged me to go to uni, um, and actually they encouraged me to go to uni and major in Japanese language. Uh, nobody ever said that I should learn my reo, um, 
because at the time it was thought that you really needed to focus on what could earn you money or what could earn you acceptance um, in a society dominated by Pākehā. Um, so by no means am I an expert on, you know, Māori issues, Indigenous issues. Um, I do not speak for all Māori. I do not speak for everyone in my tribe. I don't even speak with, you know, everybody in my in my family. Um, and I think that's normal, but I think there's also this expectation, right, that if you are of a particular community, um, that you have to represent a community. Um, and so I do push against that. Um, I can only really represent myself, but I can be accountable to my community. Um, and if I, if I misspeak, um, or if I'm, if I'm out of turn, um, it's well within the rights of my iwi or my whanau to come set me straight. Um, anyway, all that to say, um, when I consider services for Māori or Indigenous peoples in general, um, I'm thinking about everybody. So there's my grandparents' generation, um, you know, the, aunt, the aunties, the uncles who speak te reo, and they don't think about searching for information in English language terms or like search keywords um, or Boolean, like, I don't know. Um, but I'm also thinking of my my father's generation and my aunties and uncles who grew up speaking English um, and the potential for whakama, shame, um, that we all feel if we can't recite our whakapapa, our genealogy, or if we don't know like the particular story or the history that's told about two neighboring iwi, two tribes, um, or what have you. And then I'm also thinking of like my my little cousins and my little nieces and nephews who's who are now being brought up in homes where they speak te reo or it's expected that they'll learn. Um, and it's expected that they'll be involved in some respect in tribal matters. So all that to say, um, indigeneity is really complex and libraries need to be prepared to serve a range of nuanced needs. Um, and I don't mean to say like, we don't need like a lib guide or a toolkit or like for librarians to be experts on like every possible scenario. Um, it just comes down to listening. Um, yeah, like there's so many institutions that will gatekeep our ancestors. Um, and I mean like institutions that literally in their collections have the physical remains of our ancestors. Um, or the, the things that they they wrote, or the things that they created, the things that are imbued with their, um, their spirit or their history. Um, and so, you know, these, these institutions can gatekeep our access to our ancestors, um, or they can make policies that impact us without talking to us, um, and then they wonder why we're not super stoked about the Matariki display or the Native American Heritage Month display or what have you. Um, so again, I, I think it comes down to listening. That's good. You want to say something, Mila? <laughs> like, no. No, I was going to wait for you. Oh, okay. Yeah, it just <laughs> reminds me of like the quote that my Angelou said, I am one, but I come as 10,000. Like the notion, yeah, I am, you know, an individual. However, I, you know, I stand on the shoulders of my ancestors or I represent those that I'm in community with and their voices at times. And then sometimes, you know, you are speaking just for yourself and what you, you know, what you know, and that's all you got. <laughs> and people have to understand that. And I appreciate you reminding us to listen. You know, sometimes we don't, there's nothing more we can add to it. Just listen, <laughs> you know, and do. Yes, I think that's something that 
that is a recurring thing is is listening and how important that is um, for people to do. Also, I think some of the comments uh, you made kind of brought to mind, um, you know, this uh, the prominence of of cultural um, competency and how that what comes with that is this idea of like I can deal with all all any culture every culture that kind of thing right it's a false um, confidence that comes with um, sometimes with cultural competency and what we really should be leaning towards is cultural humility which is really just this idea of being prepared not to know um, necessarily but being open and and wanting to learn and adapt to to a myriad of different people, right? Because we're all diverse in different ways. And, um, you know, we all are, you know, experiencing intersectionalities and that kind of thing. And there's no one way to kind of interact and connect with someone. And so we need to come with this, this idea of like, I don't really know I, necessarily, I might not know how to interact with you, but I'm open to learning how to. Um, and that's what's missing a lot of the time is, is that humility, the cultural humility that we all need, particularly um, in service roles, but but definitely in the library. So I feel like some of what you were saying just kind of like uh, reiterated that and, and reinforced that that idea as well. Um, but around the you know your comment around the toolkit and all of that, right? Because we we're good for a toolkit, librarian. And a good good for a lip guy too. You're right. Good for that lip guy. Yeah, I mean we. As a profession, we just have this urge to fix things. Um, again, time times is often an issue, so like we want to fix things quickly. Um, and yeah, it can be really difficult to just sit in that discomfort of like I I actually don't know I um I need to defer to my patron or my community and kind of let them lead. Yes, also that the point you made about they're, they're not asking us or consulting us, but then they expect us to participate in whatever it is that goes up or put gets put out um, without our input. I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I won't be doing that, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that's definitely an issue as well that we're seeing quite a bit, right? Um, I, I feel like there's more awareness um than there used to be in the past around that mm -hmm. but you know obviously we still have much work to do mm -hmm. yeah so i think that leads us perfectly to the final question would you share with us more about your role in open education and the part indigenous knowledge plays in scholarly communication at large thank you yeah i um so again my my official official title is open education librarian um and so part of my portfolio includes um, just basically moving, moving forward open education on campus. So talking to faculty about it, um, being available if folks want to convert their course readings into open educational resources, or if they're looking for open educational resources. Um, we have a grant program where the dean's office at the library gives faculty a certain amount of stipend. Um, and then I'm on hand to guide faculty if they want to produce or adapt an open educational resource. Um, let's see, what else? I manage our scholarship repository. And so I often talk to folks about um, what it means to self-archive their work. Um, and I walk them through the process of checking copyright permissions, um, which can often be a very illuminating conversation. Um, you know, as, as academics, we often will sign these publishing contracts with these big names, um, not realizing perhaps we may be giving some of our, some of our rights away or, or deferring them. Um, and then, yeah, basically advancing um, the interests of students, right? Because 
San Francisco is one of the most expensive cities in the country, if not the world. This is a private school that students are paying to attend. Um, many of our students are, I want to say, Pell Grant eligible or they receive scholarship funding. Um, but as we all know, those kinds of funds don't often cover everything. Um, and so I, I've seen students preparing to drop classes because they've been sprung with textbook costs. Um, and so, yeah, it, there's a lot of um, advocacy that I attempt to do on behalf of students um, and also on behalf of faculty who may not have time to create these big semester-long curricula um, year after year um, and help them find alternative resources that they could use. Um, so that's kind of my day job, right? Um, and then what makes this really interesting is, as we know, um, the open movement is all about making things accessible um, and yeah, I'm I'm working on a piece right now where I look at some of the language that um, open access or open education institutions use to promote their work. Um, and there's a lot of what I could call semi-religious zeal embedded in those texts, which is really interesting to read as an indigenous person. Um, who comes from a, a colonized nation. A lot of the kind of fervor and that language is very comparable. Um, so I kind of have this inner conundrum of like, I'm being paid to advance this framework of open. Um, and I come from an indigenous community where, um, you know, not, not everything is meant to be known. Not everything is meant to be shared. Um, there are very specific tikanga or protocols for sharing information. Um, so on the one hand, it's really interesting because those things are kind of at odds with each other. Um, and on the other hand, right, it's just like, oh, another day as like a mixed race indigenous person living abroad. Um, you know, I'm really used to walking those two worlds. Um, so if folks are interested in looking at this question of indigenous knowledge within scholarly information or like how it sits in the information landscape, um, there's a lot out there. Um, you could start off by looking at um, indigenous data sovereignty, which is a movement that um, works to make sure that knowledge about Indigenous peoples or created by Indigenous peoples is governed pertaining to Indigenous sovereignty, their own rights, the laws of their own Indigenous nations. Um, and this is something that, that really becomes important when you can look and see how non-Indigenous nations or colonizing factions um, have gathered information on Indigenous people, particularly information that um, could be called deficit data, um, and then use that information to inform strategy and policy, which then impacts the lives of Indigenous people. And again, we're in a situation where Indigenous folks may not have had a say, they may not have known the implications of what they're filling out, or it's something like a like a census count or something like that, where you have to fill it out, right? Um, another place that I would direct folks to is Te Manarauranga, uh, which is the Māori Data Sovereignty Movement. Um, and they work for Māori data to be subject to Māori governance, um, and in support of Māori aspirations and tribal aspirations. Um, there's some really interesting work coming out of there. Um, and then um, 
I'll point you towards one more thing. Um, Kayla Lawson, who is a librarian over at UBC, um, she is in the process of, I don't know if she's published this yet, but you can at least find some presentations about this, um, where she talks about the six R's of indigenous OERs. Um, and so I believe what she did was she looked at the values of her um, campus tribal longhouse that talks about things like respect, relationality, um, things like that, and applied that to um, the framework for creating open educational resources. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting research and work being done in this area. Um, I hope I can contribute to it one day. Um, I'm still reflecting on the tension in these two positions and how people carry that out um, and how that kind of you know, if, if you're an indigenous person or a traditionally marginalized person working in a library or university, um, you're already showing up every day in a place that wasn't made for you. Um, and so many folks are already carrying these two, two worldviews. This is just another extension of that, that tension that might exist. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to say something to me? No, no, it's a, you could go. Because I was like, where's okay. the, where's the button? It's a Monday. I think, yeah, so you, you had, that was, you gave us a lot in that response. And so um, I'm just going to just kind of pick out one of the things, <laughs> which was around uh, tension, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, that and that is definitely universal to uh, marginalized uh, people working in these kinds of spaces, but both in in librarianship and in academia, and um, being part of institutions like you said that are were not made for us, and and um, so how do we? exist in those institutions and mm -hmm. thrive in those institutions and then how do we help others you know also thrive in, in these institutions and um so thinking kind of like if you're working in a public library and you're helping patrons who come in to the library or if you're working in an academic library and you're helping students who are also you know from marginalized um groups and so there's that that I think a push and pull in terms of um, wanting to do, you know, do for those um, underserved and marginalized populations, um, wanting to acknowledge and honor that in ourselves, right, in our own cultures and backgrounds, but then also working in institutions that have really done harm to us and continue to in some ways as well. Um, and wanting to change these these institutions, like there's just so many factors, right, to think about in terms of the tension and the push and pull that we experience mm -hmm. um, working um, in these institutions, and it's um, um, a lot to deal with, you know. So when you're saying that you're still sitting with that, like that's perfectly understandable of, of, of like wanting to think through some of this you know, as, as best as you can, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a, it's a complex situation. Yeah, you know, and here I thought I was just signing up to, you know, pay my bills, buy my groceries, and then I find myself having, having these, like, existential conversations with myself where it's like, okay, how, how can I still be of service to Indigenous folks in this role? Um, and I, I don't think that, that, that the answer to that has to be the same every day. Yeah, I like that also, that, that uh, and I think it, it took some pressure off also in thinking that it doesn't have to be the same thing every day. It can be multiple things, different ways, strategies, whatever that is, 
Um, but I, I feel that that does, it just offers kind of some relief in terms of how to move forward um, mm-hmm. in this kind of work that we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, I've, I'm never doing this work by myself. Um, you know, before, well before there was a term that we called Maori data sovereignty, Maori were, of course, looking to how to safeguard their information um, and participate in the information landscape to their benefit. We just didn't, we just didn't call it that. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm confident that there's folks to do this work alongside, um, and there will certainly be folks after me who do this work. And if I'm lucky, I'll get to help some of those folks in the profession um, come on board too. That would be great. <laughs> and for you, Jamila, because I know you like to ask the wrap up <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have reached the end of our interview questions. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you would like to talk about? Thank you. Um, I don't think so. You know, um, I I really appreciate being able to, to talk about some of these things. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for giving us wonderful um, background to who you are, you know, your culture and your heart. I appreciate all of that. Thank you so much. Yes, I think um, just listening to just everything you've shared with us, lots of food for thought for for us as well as our listeners. And and also just kind of drives home the point of this podcast is, you know, to kind of just understand different points of view and perspectives from uh, BIPOC librarians and information workers. And so you're definitely uh, exemplary of that, of what we're, you know, trying to do here. And um, the things you shared with us, I think, um, definitely resonate with, with us all. Well, thank you. You're too kind. Um, and I, I really look forward to um, listening to the new season of your podcast and just seeing who else you've gotten to chat with. Oh, it's going to be a fiery season. (laughs) I can't wait either. Yes, it'll be good. (laughs) But in the meantime, I hope everyone's enjoying with the the season that we have out now that you're listening to, I'm sure, (laughs) as we speak. We hope you learned more about Nikki Andrews. We'd like to share a quote with you before we sign off. All powers have two sides, the power to create and the power to destroy. We must recognize them both, but invest our gifts on the side of creation. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Remember to keep walking in your lib voices and please follow us on all of our social media pages.